Hello, welcome to another episode of Rethinking Rehab with Dr. Shane Smith, licensed physical therapist practicing out of Naples, Florida. I own my own physical therapy practice called Naples Premier Physical Therapy here in town. And I wanted to do another research rundown this morning. Uh, it's a little bit rainy, nasty out. Had a shortened day today, so I thought I would jump on here and go over a really, really phenomenal piece of research I've read, kind of talk about what's in it, what's, what is it telling us, and for those that aren't in the medical field that just want to learn something, it's really important to learn about your feet and a common condition many of us face on a regular basis, whether or not be at the same time, but at some point in our lifetime, 10% of the population deals with this, and it's called plantar fasciitis. Um, I've done a prior podcast on heel pain and treatments for it and individualized plans of how you can work on your feet to prevent this condition and what are some of the factors that I've kind of felt lead up to plantar fasciitis. So if, if you're interested in some of that background info, it is on a prior podcast I did. I believe it's called Good Morning Heel Pain. Uh, so that might be a cool reference to look back to if this podcast interests you on the subject. Um, but I wanted to talk about a little research that's been done on this. And it's really some of the best research I've seen with how they've specified the groups, what they looked at in terms of participants, outcome measures, noticeable significant statistical improvements, research showing this is the way to go with things, and it's related to treatment of plantar fasciitis. Um, the title of this research study is Electrical Dry Needling as an Adjunct to Exercise, Manual Therapy, and Ultrasound for Plantar Fasciitis. It's a multi-center randomized clinical trial. Um, this was performed by some of the professors that I got certified in for my dry needling. This was a research paper published four years ago in 2018, and I really, really enjoyed reading over it and seeing kind of what they did study-wise in it. So, you know, one of the things you see a lot in research is let's use one option and then let's try something different. And at the end of those research reports, they always come with the same conclusions of, well, there's too many variables here. It could be this factor that caused it. could be that one. We need to do more research to figure it out. And you kind of get left vaguely knowing, was this positive? Was this negative? I don't really know right now. Um, so I liked how they set this one up because what they did with this one, and as I've said in prior recordings, and I'll say it again, I treat a lot of plantar fasciitis, a lot of foot-related pathology issues I see regularly. I love working on this problem. It's a very mobile area of the body. It's directly in contact with the world around us, thus very important to make sure is right. Um, and with what they compared on this, it's kind of, for me as a practitioner, an older school way I handled this versus now with what I know how I should look at it and handle it. So it's kind of look in your rear view mirror as a therapist and see what you've done and actually know you've had good results with and then look forward in the windshield and say, what's in front of me that could make this better? Um, so with plantar fasciitis, I, I do feel that a lot of people that have had physical therapy unsuccessfully for this are missing some manual form component that really kind of sets the stage differently for treating this issue. Um, when we're talking plantar fasciitis, we're talking the bottom of our foot, 
near the heel and it hurts there. Um, <laughs> most people experience pain in their heel when they first get up in the morning and it's kind of like a stab of discomfort when you first stand. Some people experience less severity in the morning and as they're on their feet as the day progresses, that's when symptoms start to worsen and it starts to get very painful, primarily located on, on the heel where that tissue attaches to your calcaneus bone, which is your heel bone. Um, I have had patients that get more referred pain up through the arch region or into the metatarsal, the ball of the foot. Uh, but it's all based on inflammation to that aponeurosis, that densely connective tissue on the bottom of the foot. And in the past, I've always felt mobilizing, moving those joints in the foot, stretching that tissue out in the foot, you know, working that stuff so that you get better circulation, better blood flow, reduced tightness to it all. Um, you know, you think about any, any tissue, any product that you stretch and hold tight and you don't want it to tear, it's, it's inevitably going to happen. You got to take the tension off the tissue, otherwise it's going to tear. I mean, that's just common sense. So I've found that component is usually lacked and it's normally typically a straight exercise component. I'm not bashing exercise. I think exercise for plantar fasciitis definitely is helpful. I like all the eccentric loading of calves and, you know, the, the intrinsic foot strengthening. I think that's all extremely important uh, stuff to do as well with it. But typically when I've seen patients with unsuccessful PT and they're looking at me like, what the hell are you going to do for me? I've already been to one or two of you guys and you never seem to help. You just seem to push and hurt like hell on my foot. Um, I find that's a big component as well missing. So when you look at ultrasound, exercise, manual therapy, opposed to the exact same treatment, let's just throw some needles in the mix too. Now we definitely know what is making this group better or worse or, or what is helping one group more so than another group would be directly related to electro dry needling added. So for me, it's kind of fun. It's like, okay, hey, this is something you're into. You're doing more. You're seeing a lot of good results with. Plantar fasciitis is such a common thing so many people are affected with. Let's see if adding this to it helps. And, you know, the positive I'll say generality-wise before I kind of get into more of the nuts and bolts is that both groups got better. So you have to take some grain of salt with this and say, well, the therapists that they use in these control studies must have been pretty decent practitioners to be able to get good results because one of the preset indicators on this study is you've had to have this problem for a long ass time. Uh, over three months, you've had to have plantar fasciitis with unsuccessful PT. So it's kind of interesting. It's like all the failed groups, the people that don't just, you know, snap back into, oh, I just was off my foot for a week and I iced it and I stretched my calves and, and guess what? It went away. Those easy cases of plantar fasciitis are not in this. This is the ones that aren't responding well. And it's like, why is this not helping? the group that I love working with because it's actually a challenge, but that's what they did with this. So to some of the, the constraints of this, they had 111 people in the study. So 111 people fit the descriptors needed to do this study. So you've got 50 some odd on each side. So you've got enough people on either side to know, is this actually helping or not? Um, you know, when we take a, a step back and look at plantar fasciitis, I kind of talked a little bit about physical therapy, what we do, what we look at, how we help this. But I guess a bigger issue to talk about and make known to regular people if they don't know this yet is that the most common treatment for plantar fasciitis by most practitioners in the medical field besides 
PTs that can't do it are injections of some sort. Um, if it's not an orthotic, it's an injection. I don't think I've ever heard a podiatrist or some general doctor that can do these kind of injections on people not go to one of those two options first. Why is that a problem? Well, if we look at research, corticosteroid injections show some benefit with symptoms, especially for plantar fasciitis in the short term. But if you go long term, outcomes are totally lacking. Moreover, steroid injections have been linked with plantar fat pad atrophy. So the only cushion you've got down there on that heel to save pressure and force of walking and moving on this tissue is being eaten up by the steroid. It can cause heel osteomyelitis, which is inflammation of the heel bone itself. And it can cause, which this happens in all connective tissue you inject with corticosteroids, it causes a weakening in the actual tissue itself, which allows for future ruptures to occur. When you go into shoulders, rotator cuff stuff, this is where it becomes really important because a rotator cuff does so much with shoulder movement. But that's a population you see this happen all the time with. If they're on the three-a-year schedule of corticosteroids, it's only a matter of a couple years and too big of a load, and that goddamn tendon is totally ripping. So that's another factor. Do you want to feel good for a week and rupture your plantar fascia to where you need to now have surgery to fix it? Doesn't sound like a winning situation. Or I've now got um, atrophy or, or loss of fat or cushioning support on my heel. That sounds like a big problem going down the road. If you're already having irritation, inflammation of that tissue now, take further cushioning away and see how it's going to go in the future. You're going to potentially have further bone spur, spur formation and other kind of issues that are definitely going to cause a problem. So when we look at treating this issue, really trying to do the least invasive on it is always best to go with. Um, and I personally think that the dry needling is the most invasive care that I provide, but still substantially less invasive than even an injection would be. The needle size is substantially smaller. These are dry needles. There's no liquid that can go through them. Also, there is no actual medicine that's causing any change. The only thing we're looking at, which I'll go into more depth on how electro needling does cause changes, but we're trying to cause natural healing improvements to where we're just kind of taking jumper cables or we're taking some external device and saying, here, body, here's a little extra oomph. Now fix it how you're supposed to. And that's the premise of really what we're doing with this. So in this study, as I said, you're looking at um, 111 participants. They had inclusion and exclusion criteria, which there are quite a few of these. Um, so I will kind of go through them quickly. The inclusion, how you are eligible to be in this study, was you had to have a clinical diagnosis of plantar fasciitis. So some doctor had said, yep, based on your symptom impact, this is plantar fasciitis. Secondly, which I think is one of the most important inclusion criteria, they had to have heel pain for longer than three months. And the first step in the morning, which is a pain rating, like when you first get out of bed and you step, ow, how much did that hurt? It had to be at least a 2 on a 0 to 10 scale. So you had to have those. So it had to be at least a somewhat substantial irritation. It had to have been going on for a while, as well as you had to be older than 18 years old. Um, a lot of times when you look at dry needling, younger kids, it's sometimes not recommended. I would probably not dry needle someone under, you know, 
14, 15 years old just because they don't quite understand what's going on fully. Um, I regularly dry needle my high school athletes and they're totally fine with it, don't have issues, actually look forward to it. So I don't think, you know, I think 18 years old is, is fine. Um, exclusion, so how you were thrown out, unable to participate, equally important. Um, this takes a lot of chronic problems out. So if we kind of look at someone that's got a chronic issue, I've got a patient to give you an example, had three knee surgeries. Their knee's never going to be fully right because of all the damage and changes in surgery. You can't expect to have great outcomes with someone like that. You can only hope to have decent outcomes with someone like that. Um, but what excluded people from this study, if they had a history of surgery to the ankle, foot, or lower leg, so once again, we're talking surgery and or complications from surgery, that's out, can't be in the study if you've had that. Potential contradictions to manual therapy or dry needling. So just the general, is this okay to do on you or not? If it's not, then they were thrown out as well from the study. Um, had received conservative treatment for this issue in the last month. So if they just seen a PT in the last month, that was excluded. You had to have some time of this, of not getting care for this. Um, they were not allowed to have positive neurologic signs for nerve root compression, that which can also cause some of these symptoms you would think would be plantar fasciitis, but it's really coming from a nerve problem in the back. Um, and they weren't allowed to have other issues like tarsal tunnel syndrome, calcaneal fractures, ankle foot instabilities, severe rheumatoid arthritis issues, and it kind of goes on and on and on. Um, and they weren't allowed to be considered on workers' compensation. So all those people that kind of fake injuries, you're all out of this study too. So by throwing all of those out, I feel like this gives you a pretty good group of people in to look at. So what they did is they did eight treatment sessions, uh, up to eight. Most of them were six sessions, um, one to two times a week for one month. So we're talking, give us a month of your time and let's see what we can do. Um, the two groups received almost the same care. They both received manual therapy the same way. They both received the same therapeutic exercises. They both received ultrasound to the same area on the same settings, except one group had 20 minutes of electro dry needling with an eight point plot for where to place the needles in the foot area. One was through, through the heel, hitting where the attachment point was, and that's where they did some pecking, which I'll talk about. Um, it's kind of causing a little micro trauma on the bone attachment site and they did the pecking for 30 seconds, which is kind of brutal. Um, but that's what they did on the most painful spot. They also had seven other points in the foot and ankle, uh, affecting certain muscles in that area that they all hooked up to electro current. Uh, it was on a two hertz, 200 micro wave frequency for 20 minutes to tolerable level. So kind of tell me when to stop was going up in intensity and that's what they got. The other group just didn't get that. So that's what you're looking at with these two groups on what did you receive? How long did you receive it for? Uh, both groups did get a home exercise program that they were told to do three times a day. So they did both have stuff at home to be doing. I'd argue the prior therapy they should have gotten already would have had that. Um, but their outcomes that they looked at, a lot of them were subjective. Um, first, step pain rating, resting foot pain rating, pain during activity, lower extremity functional scale, foot functional index, medication intake level, and global rating of change. So those were all the parameters that they looked at and they checked these parameters 
at the baseline initial assessment, one week into treatment, four weeks right at the end of treatment, and then three months after everything had been done for, which I always love having that last one in. And honestly, for conduction of research is always tough because when you're checking outcome measures with someone while they're getting care, they're coming in because they want the care. But to get these people to come in three months after they had care just to finish out your study to determine was it effective or was it not is is really you know important to have. So each group, 53 people fit the criteria. The thing that was interesting is the duration of symptoms both groups had. The group that did receive electrical dry needling had it for on average of 386 days. That's insane. They had pain in their heel for over a year straight with no way of fixing it. The group that was just manual therapy exercise and ultrasound was 336 days. So you're talking about both subgroups that are over a year of heel pain. I can tell you that is a hard nut to crack. There is a big challenge with treating someone uh, that has had a chronic issue for over a year. It takes normally two months to get like a good outcome with that. To do it in one month is really is really cooking. Um, so the fact that they got the results they did in such a short duration of time, really, really impressive. Um, they did talk a little bit about the needling group, what they experienced negatively with it. 67% um, of those of the of the group that received it of the 53 had some post needling soreness. So once again, if you're looking at considering this treatment added to your care, realize over half the people are going to have some soreness with this treatment. And I will tell you, I have been treated for this myself. I've had this whole eight point treatment done on me and it wasn't the most enjoyable treatment I've ever had with dry needling. It's up there on one of the more challenging ones to tolerate. Just because the muscles of your feet actually have such good sensation due to the fact that you're having to walk on different surfaces and to have something sharp touch you in a point that you're not used to ever experiencing, it really, it, it is a challenge. But with that being said, it is so effective. Um, I've had incredible results personally with it. And as we get to the conclusion of this research that they did as well. So one of the first things they looked at was first step pain intensity. So first thing in the morning, get up, how bad does your heel hurt? The baseline reading for both groups was roughly a little over a six out of 10. At the end of the treatment, so four weeks after, the electro group was down to a three or less. The one without electro dry needling, the one that was just manual ultrasound and therapeutic exercises, was over a four, so over a one point pain difference at the end of the month treatment. So both got better going down from like a, a little over a six to a little over a four and a half or a three. That's great. But then when you look out three more months, the electro group went down to a two and the non-electro dry needling group dropped just a little bit to like about a four, or just above a four. So they both continue to improve after treatment stopped, which means you actually did have a physiological change on that impaired tissue um, that continued to get better over three months. But that electro went down to from a six to a two. That is substantial improvements uh, for that duration. When you look at lower extremity function, both went up from a 
scale of about a 50 up to a 70 range. So both of those improve noticeably. Overall, all these different subgroups had improvement. So both groups improved with first step pain. They improved with resting foot pain. They improved with pain during activity. So your actual movement-based stuff was still better. Lower extremity functional scale was better as well as the redu reduction of medication intake. So we're becoming less dependent on alternative pain rem remedies as well as overall function continues to get better. Um, the patients within the electrode dry needling group, 78% achieved successful outcomes compared to the other group at 21%. So they both did get better, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. But the group that had electrode dry needling added to the prior treatment substantially got better and in the exact same time period and or faster. Um, there was another study referenced in this one um, that the controlled trial of patients within chronic plantar fasciitis reported a 69% reduction in foot pain and an 80% success rate following 10 sessions of electroacupuncture over five weeks. So here's another group, another study that they quoted in this one that found a substantial 70-80% reduction in pain and success overall with the care with just five weeks. So it's not just this one they did. There's other ones showing virtually the same kind of parameters and improvement. And all of that, I feel, is really important. Now, one factor that is very different with what we're doing with electric dry needling versus just acupuncture is we are using similar acupressure points. So that's where we get the eight-point plan from. There is some acupuncture derivative of where we're placing needles at, but it also has a trigger point overlap. So 96% of acupressure points are actually also active trigger point locations, which is something we target a lot with dry needling is trying to get to trigger points, which are taut bands of muscles that cause a lot of problems in the muscle and the neurologic surrounding tissue. Um, periosteal pecking is not the funnest thing. I had mentioned before that with the dry needling group, they did get 30 seconds of periosteal pecking in the heel attachment site where it was most tender. Um, what the pecking does is, is it taps, it almost like knocks on the door of the bone and by knocking on the door of the bone, it causes small little puncture sites that causes a little micro bleeding. So it's almost kind of like some of the other treatments that you're here with like PRP and some of those other treatments that they want some bleeding, they want some actual blood from your bone to be in and around the irritated tissue because a lot of that blood tissue has a lot of proteins and other matrix that are needed to heal certain connective tissues. So when you look at PRP injections and things like that, it's a, it's a, a, a protein-enriched fluid that they're putting in that tissue, and that's what the periosteal pecking actually can do for you directly at a site of irritation. And that was one of the things that they discussed being very beneficial to using that periosteal pecking as well as why it's different than just acupuncture to those spots. Um, this is going to be slightly challenging to follow, but I am going to kind of quote a couple sections here because I feel that one of the things I can't do a great job of is fully explaining the science that has been researched behind how all this stuff works 
and how we know to a very specific level that what we're doing is actually causing a substantial improvement just based on, not just based on the parameters, the outcome measures I told you before that all improved, that a lot of them were subjective. How does the person feel they're doing getting up in the morning? How do they feel when they're active? How do they feel just globally? How much medication are they taking? But let's go into the more detailed aspects of how do we know this is working. So when you look at an electrical dry needling or electrical acupuncture, it has been found, quoting, it has been found to cause a release of substance P and CGRG, predominantly from non-neural structures facilitating a negative feedback loop to neural and neuroactive compounds in the target tissue. So what that means is certain substances will get released by doing electrical dry needling in your tissues that cause a negative pain feedback loop. So it's causing your brain and the nerves going to your brain to perceive less pain in that area, which takes your pain rating down, which makes dealing with the recovery healing process much more tolerable. That's why we give people opioids after surgery because it hurts like hell. And the only thing that's going to help that for the most part is, 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 an, is, is a medication to do it. And that's why we have those things because we shouldn't suffer if we don't have to suffer. Um, going back to CGRP in high quantities causes inflammation. But the concurrent release of substance P combined with electrical stimulation in the vicinity of the periosteum may provide sustained low levels of CGRP, which is a, a, an inflammatory, required for potent anti-inflammatory and therefore anti-nociceptive effects. CGRP also initiates a cascade of events mediated by protein kinase A, a vascular smooth muscle, in vascular smooth muscle, leading to, to vasodilation. So this substance not only is involved with the inflammatory process, also involved with negative pain feedback loops, it also is involved with increasing circulation, which we need blood flow for white blood cells to heal tissues, Moreover, protein kinase A stimulates nitric oxide synthesis. Nitric oxide also causes increased circulation, increasing the production of nitric oxide, thereby exaggerating the vasodilation effect. The improvement in vasodilation may improve the microcirculation within the plantar foot, resulting in increased opioid delivery and decreased inflammatory effects in the vicinity of the plantar aponeurosis. So what the needles and the current are doing is it's reducing your pain, it's improving inflammatory healing processing, as well as increasing circulation for tissue remodeling. All factors that are absolutely needed to get someone better. You cannot heal a tissue right without those factors present. And that has been seen, proven in research that that's what we're doing with electrodry needling. And that's why I'm falling more and more in love with doing that treatment on patients and why I'm seeing faster and faster and better long-term results with care doing it. I would recommend those that want to read this study to go ahead and do it. I thought it was fantastic, and uh, I hope this podcast was informative for all of you listening as well. Take care. Enjoy yourself, everyone.